This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Try to put on the show. It's Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Danny O'Neill is here. I am here. And guess what? 2021 is here for Russell Wilson, Danny. Russell Wilson is at the turn of his career. He's at the turn. In a golf round, you, you go to the back nine. And this is an opportunity to take stock of what he's done, but also what he still has left to do because the back nine of his career is going to be different. It, it's it's he's going to have to change as a quarterback to to deal with a reality that I think we've been able to see. But he's at the turn and he was on with Jake and Stacy yesterday and he shared sort of his feeling about the position he's in as he prepares for what this is going to be his 10th season in the league. To being your 10, you know, it feels like you're one for me. You know, I've been saying that quite a bit to the performance team and stuff like that and you know, the reality for me is, is that um, it's, I feel it feels like it's just the beginning. You know, it feels like I'm just getting started. And, and I think for me, I've had a great career so far, but so far it doesn't mean anything yet. I like the last part. You mentioned the turn. I also hope that this is the turn from off-season Russ into regular season Russ. He's right in that it has to be a different, I think, back nine of his career. There are things that he has to adapt, outright change as he gets older and older. We're not talking about the youthful, agile, athletic quarterback that he probably was 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe even two years ago. Every quarterback has to deal with that, though, right? Yep. Like, every, every, every quarterback has to deal with that on, on the back half of their career. The difference with Russ is that you, you could say more of Russ's early success was dependent. That might be overstated, but look. His evasiveness, his elusiveness, and his ability to run was a significant asset. And there's a lot of quarterbacks whom that describes. But it's different for those quarterbacks compared to a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady, for whom that that speed has never been something that has been a tool for them. It's something that they've constantly known that they don't have that in, in their repertoire. So it it is a little bit different for a quarterback like Russell Wilson, but I think as someone like Donovan McNabb, McNabb had an incredibly prolific career that lasted an awful long time. What you don't want to be as a quarterback, Colin Kaepernick is the example, but Russ has already shown he's not that, right? That can't can't adapt to a, a, or change when when defenses start doing different things. So, but it is this is this is going to be different for him. There's also a mindset change here, man. And some of this turn is that I think for the first time he looked at his situation publicly during the offseason and said, maybe this isn't good enough. And that puts some pressure on the team. It also puts an awful lot of pressure back on him. This is a different position for him going into this season. Yeah, no doubt about it. To mention that mobility side of his game, it is important. I mean, that's how he makes a lot of those big plays that he's able to do. It's worth noting with Donovan McNabb, by the way, that when he turned 34 and he was with Washington football team, that's where his career started to take He's a nosedive. He's at that point, though, right? So I think it's almost unfair to compare the two just because I, I, I think Russ is significantly better than, than Donovan Yeah, I agree McNabb. with that. I think with Russ, the question I have for you, at 
what percentage of his mobility that he had in 2012 is he at right now? It's like 60%, 70%. Like, I don't think it's falling off a cliff. He's not all of a sudden Peyton Manning, no doubt about that. Well, 80 85%. But here's the difference is that we're talking about the slimmest of margins. Like in a league where they make a significant difference right. about a tenth of a second, like being 85% of how elusive you were before is the difference between escaping a sack and not. So it's it's not a, hey, you can do 85% of the things you used to do. It's, hey, you can only avoid 25% of the sacks that you used to slither your way out of just because, dude, everybody... You're no longer – he doesn't outrun linebackers anymore. There's times he doesn't outrun defensive linemen. And before, when he got matched up one-on-one one on a linebacker, I would say that Russ is going to make that dude miss. He can't outrun those guys anymore. Right, at least to the same degree. And I think we saw that marginal difference really most vividly against the New York Giants. Yeah, that's probably true. He He's always had trouble, though. Like, the one thing he has always – if there was a formula for stopping Russell Wilson – it is a slow, contained pass rush. It is a pass rush that gradually compacts the pocket around him. That's been true since Jeff Fisher's days with the Rams. The Rams gave them all sorts of problems, and in part because it was a controlled, compressing pass rush. So that's that's something that's always been there. But yeah, the Giants game was his worst game last season. There are some things that, outside of mobility, he's going to have to adapt to. Learning, and, and I would more so say, Danny, trusting the plays of a new offense because this is going to be a gradual process of this offense, right? I mean, we're going to, I think, see the first month of the regular season more so for Seattle than maybe other teams as a feeling out process of what works for Shane Waldron and what doesn't work for Shane Waldron and what plays the two of them like to call between the two and the plays that some that Russ, I'm sure, won't like or that Shane Waldron maybe will be a little bit, eh, I don't yeah. know how I want to call this. Yeah, absolutely. It's the first time in his in since coming to the Seahawks in 2012 that he'll have a full new playbook to work with. Yeah, I, I expect it to be an adjustment. I also feel though the idea that there's a cliff that's being approached, or like there's a moment that he's going to hit and it's never going to be the same again. Dude, he was the MVP for the first eight games of last season. Like this, this isn't. It wasn't like he was doing something those first eight games that he that this is. Hey, it's. After that, game nine, something changed. It's never going to be the same again. Well, what is the cliff for a quarterback? Because I think you could... Well, Tom Brady's 43 and we just won a Super Bowl. That's what I mean, though. So, Tom Brady, at the end of last year, was not playing the best football of his career. Right. Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, and we're talking about Russ in back-to-back years where, I would say in 2019, first half two, you could have made a strong case for him as MVP. Obviously, Lamar Jackson sort of ran away with it, starting in the middle of the year and, and closed it out, where Russ... Not to the same degree. He didn't have as much help from the running game. Being able to go through 17 games and to maintain that level or to get better as the season goes along, that is something that has not happened the last two years. I think Lesser, it was not his fault as much in 2019 as it was last year. Is it on Russ or is it on the offense? Because if you're saying that the past two seasons he started off fine and then tailed off, there's a question of stamina then. I guess he could. There's a question of injury. Or there's also the possibility that teams recognized what Seattle was doing and Seattle couldn't adjust its way out of it. That's the hope. And that's why you brought in Shane Waldron. But it also is something that he is involved with. And as the season goes along, that, that is something I will be keeping an eye on. If they seem to be improving as the season goes on. Because while Brady's play wasn't great in the playoffs, that offense became better and better, which I think definitely helped him out down the stretch. Hopefully around him, yeah. Russ is going to need some help from that side of things. 
But also, I think trusting that offense and if he has more control at the line of scrimmage, being willing to turn around and hand things off to Chris Carson a little bit more, perhaps, than the Seahawks did last year for a hopefully Wait, improved Wait, we don't want game. him to run. I thought, I thought the whole idea of giving him control was so he could cook more. Is that not what we're looking for? I think it's making that was my understanding. That was my understanding from everybody's hope that he has more control at the line of scrimmage is that he's going to be able to throw more. I think it's he's going to have more control to make the absolute right decision at the line of scrimmage. And I, I Here, here's the quote that I loved most from Russ because I think it showed that there is a little bit of a he, he he's he's got his jaw set. He's stubborn about this year, and he feels that he's got something to prove. He talked about who they build statues for, or more specifically, who they don't build them for. They don't build statues, you know, after critics. You got to do the work. I don't really care about the critics. I don't really care about the. I don't really care about the people who who praise you too, because they'll love you one day and they'll hate you the next. And so for me, I just stay focused on the task and just stay focused on what 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 I know I'm going to do and what we're going to do, and uh, that's it. It's the first time he's had a catchphrase. Like that's the first catchphrase he's had that I've liked, and I've been like, "Ooh, yeah!" They don't build statues for critics. <laughs> that's the first time that I've had it. I was like, "Go back to that one, Russ. That wasn't corny at all." It's a really dark quote, though. We, yeah, I mean, it, it is not just with the critics, with the other part. We're like, well, they'll turn on you at the end too. It's like, whoa, okay, this sound like Julius Caesar all of a sudden. It reminded me of the hard rhymer Chuck D of Public Enemy, who once described as a critic as someone who comes over to your house, drinks your beer. Eats all your food, sleeps on the couch, and then complains about the night he had. I was like, yeah, Russ has got a little edge to him there. They don't build statues over critics. <laughs> we talk about careers with him a lot. We talk about uh, statues every now and then with him, legacy, with the reality. Uh, but at least he wasn't talking about theoretical statues that will be built of him in that quote. I hope that this lights a fire under him in a way that it hasn't before because this is the first offseason where he actually has faced, I think, real scrutiny. More than any other year, because 2019 to 2020, we're talking about a guy who was perhaps a victim, who was uh, just a rat in a cage, if you will. It's Danny Gallant. It's time for us to tell you the front page news. This, this is the front page brought to you by Dubin Law Group. Today's top two stories and why they matter every morning at 710. Get what you need to know to start your day right now. What's the difference between a veteran day off and a hold-in? Here's the answer. 24 hours. Because on Tuesday, it was a veteran day off for Quandria Diggs, who was just walking, watching practice. On Tuesday, this is what Pete Carroll said had to say about his free safety's absence from the workout. Uh, Quandria, he, uh, he needed a day-to-day. It was a good day to, to, to have him take a break. And yesterday... He was still taking a break. It's a hold-in. This shouldn't surprise anybody, and anybody who's like, oh, man, somebody saw his rating on the NFL top one. No, no, no. This is, it has been understood going back to the spring that for Seattle's extension docket, it was going to be Jamal Adams. Once Jamal Adams was set, then it's Quandre Diggs. I'm not worried about this yet. It's not a great sign that he was holding in, but it's not ominous either. The, the expectation, Seattle is engaged in a negotiation with him. And he may not like some of the direction that it's gone, but I, I do think that this this deal is ultimately going to get done. Why do you think he made the decision to hold in starting now, as opposed to perhaps at the same time as Jamal Adams at the beginning of camp? Because the Seahawks told him they were going to get to his extension after Adams. 
So there was nothing there was nothing happening at that point. He knew that he was on deck after Adams and maybe he's getting a little antsy because the whole thing with Adams dragged on a couple weeks and he's like, "Well, I would like to get a resolution. I don't want to wait through two months of back and forth." Honestly, it, it might have made sense for him to also hold in at the same time that Adams was holding in because then with more pressure on them to get a deal done for Adams, there would also be pressure to get a deal done for Quandre Diggs. The depth at Seahawks safety is not ideal. No matter how you feel about Ryan Neal, I mean, you did see that Ugo Amadi's playing back there a little bit. Diggs is one of the most important Seahawks, and he's proven that over the last couple, uh, over the last two seasons. The front page, the Ring of Honor of the Seattle Seahawks has added two more names: quarterback Matt Hasselbeck and head coach Mike Holmgren. Here is perhaps the most famous or infamous and difficult to listen back to because you remember what happened that led to this quote by one Mike Holmgren. We knew it was going to be tough going against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I didn't know we were going to have to play the guys in the striped shirts as well. Watching from afar as a somewhat neutral observer who hated the Pittsburgh Steelers, Danny, that game still bothers me. Should not have been a Super Bowl for Pittsburgh. It's brutal. That was one of the ones you're trained as a sports journalist not to focus on the officiating. Fans of the team are always going to complain about the officials. I I left the press box that that night going in knowing that there were questionable calls. The Seahawks, by and large, did not complain about them in the post-game press conferences. And it really wasn't until later that night that I realized that the entire country felt that the Seahawks got hosed. And it was... It was yeah, there's no Twitter then. No, it was eye-opening. It really was. Because I... You're trained as a journalist to think and to understand that fans of the team you cover will always believe that the officials have it out for them. Right. And it wasn't until the next day, really, when the some of the the the, the shouter shows, like the talkers, <laughs> at that point it was like, pardon the interruption, were the rest of the country is screaming that Seattle got jobbed because the NFL wanted Pittsburgh to win. We also have this news, Danny. Luke Wilson, who signed back with the Seahawks for one day, has announced his retirement. He explained why in a post, saying this offseason I went through some health issues and spent numerous days in the hospital with a severe pericardial effusion. That sounds scary. Situation challenged me as an individual and changed my perspective on a lot of things with regard to my life. And after reflecting on everything yesterday and being in the building, I have decided that it's time for me to be with the next chapter of my life. Which I hope is some sort of podcast because I would listen to all of the weird rabbit holes that Luke Wilson would go down to for many hours. Luke's fantastic. I reached out to him, congratulate him. It's an incredible career that he had beating the numbers in an awful lot of different ways. He also mentioned a, a, a heart condition. Yeah, pericardial effusion. Yeah, that I, I didn't know he'd gone through. I, I wish nothing but, but the best for Luke, and I'm going to be a fan. I'll always be a fan of him and whatever he does. That is front page news. Let's get to the professor for our morning drive. John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything. NFL, NFL from the professor, John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. Professor, both Matt Hasselbeck and Mike Holmgren have been announced to the Seahawks Ring of Honor. You're on the Hall of Fame committee. How far away is Mike Holmgren from a, an eventual induction, seeing as he took three different teams to Super Bowls, two teams with the Pack, two times with the Packers, and of course the last time with Seattle? I thought he should have got in this year. 
unfortunately, uh, it's like in give you a little bit of a history lesson. It's like, uh, you know, because I sat to, next to Will McDonough for so many years in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And one of the things that uh, he taught me and I kept following through every single year after he left us is that, uh, you know, what we need is a contributor category and a coaching category okay so i kept on pushing and pushing and pushing and finally we got the contributor category but it didn't include coaches because coaches aren't going to uh be able to beat out players because players are always going to get the advantage and so it cuts down a number of coaches thankfully dave baker and the uh, hall of fame people listen to me we got the coaches category and so that set it up that yesterday even though it was tied to the senior vote because again you had the senior committee meeting and that that's why unfortunately i won't be able to be able to do tuesday because i'm on a contributor committee uh next week is that uh you know we got the coaches vote and unfortunately dick vermeil beat out uh mike holmgren and don coriel and so I, my guess would be <clears throat> it's got to be next year or the year after that, but it's real close that Mike Holmgren will get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Certainly with the uh, championships that he's been able to do, the playoffs, the record, all those different things, he should have been able to beat out Dick Vermeil. But uh, the fact that uh, you know he didn't yesterday as far as the vote, I think it's just inevitable he's going to be able to get in. And so let's just hope he gets in next year because he's so deserving. And yeah, I just wish that uh, they had me on the on the coaches' vote uh, to be able to at least help get him in because he's so deserving. What's always surprised me, John, and uh, Seattle has a great appreciation for Mike Holmgren. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think understanding that he elevated a franchise that had been, with the exception of kind of a three to four year window with Chuck Knox, had been had been known for its mediocrity for for a long time, and he elevated them and really kind of started what has become the golden age now with with Pete Carroll. Like Mike Holmgren did a lot to to make the Seahawks a relevant and an important franchise. Green Bay, they seem to constantly go... Like, I saw that there was discussions this offseason about all the people that need to be recognized for what they did in that Green Bay renaissance. It seems like people in Green Bay don't give Holmgren his due. Like, Ron Wolf gets his roses. Everybody loves Ted Thompson. All of these people are deserving. But that doesn't happen without Holmgren. Like, the three most important people... Well, four most important people in Green Bay winning a Super Bowl and becoming relevant again. Reggie White... Brett Favre, Ron Wolf, Mike Holmgren, and it's not close. And everybody loves those other three. It seems like Holmgren gets overlooked in Green Bay. Yeah, but a lot of that for the, the Hall of Fame comes down to the fact we didn't have a coaching category. I mean, because, again, it's like, okay, you know, uh, Ron Wolf was able to maybe – we got the contributor category that they listened to me and they were able to go for. And so Ron Wolf, uh, in that one of the first years we had the coaching – the contributor category, was able to make it. You know, it was Ron Wolf. Then eventually it was going to be Bill Polian. And so it's like, okay. So now it's a matter – now we have the coaching category. And, he, you know, he didn't beat out Bill Cower because we needed to take care of him and so it's it, he'll get that honor and, and I don't know what's going on in Green Bay but you know it was you know certainly Ron Wolf and Mike Holmgren that turned that entire franchise around along with Reggie White and so it's like uh, you know you know sometimes you know people think oh well he should get this and he should get that and he should get that well it just takes a little bit of time particularly when we're trying to invent new ways to do it I mean Mike Holmgren was not going to beat out Alan Fanica. He was not going to beat out uh, Steve Hutchinson. He was not going to beat out Kevin Mawai as far as being a Hall of Famer. But now it's a matter we have the opportunity with the with the coaching 
uh, category. And hopefully they'll expend it past the four years we're allowed to have the coaching category to a point where he can make it in. And I think next year, I thought it was going to be this year, that he should be able to make it in. Again, I wasn't part of the vote yesterday, so I don't know what it went in the room, why Dick Vermeil beat him out. But, I mean, he had a better career, in my opinion, than uh, Dick Vermeil, as great as Dick Vermeil was. It is interesting to see just how we rank head coaches over the course of their career. I know Tom Flores was somebody that people wanted in the Hall of Fame, one of my co-workers in, in Houston specifically, for a really long time. And, and, and he's able to get in. He has the two Super Bowls. You, you mentioned Mike Holmgren as a guy who's turned around a couple of different teams. Bill Cowher, meanwhile, he's with the Steelers, and they were consistent, but it was only the one Super Bowl that, that they, they're able to win with Bill Cowher in charge before Mike Tomlin takes over and stuff. It is interesting to see just how we compare them. Since I know you're not a part of this process, but how do you look at Super Bowl appearances, Super Bowl victories versus an all-time record for some of these coaches? Well, now remember, I am part of the process because I've been voting since 1988, and uh, even though I'm not the oldest person in the room, I'm the senior person in the room. I've been doing this longer than anybody else in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that's currently voting. Okay, so I am part of this process, and I'm part of the process enough that they listen to me thankfully, to a point where they 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 gave us the contributor category and the coaching category. But, uh, you know, it's still a matter. You're, we're, we're always playing catch-up, and people doesn't people don't understand that. We're doing that with the vote for players. We're doing that with the vote for coaches. We're doing that for the vote for contributors. And so it just takes some time because, I mean, you're weeding through a lot of different things to be able to get this going. And so in the case of, like, a, in Mike Holmgren and others, it, you know, it's like, okay, so he didn't make it this year. He'll make it next year. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, I still remember whether it was Pat Bolin or Jerry Jones and all that in the contributor category. It's like, wow, well, how come he didn't get in this year? Okay, did they get in? Yes. The idea is of getting them into the Pro Football Hall of Fame because it's inevitable. It will happen, hopefully, for Mike Holmgren. It'll, it should have happened this year, but it will happen next year. John, should we worry about Quandry Diggs and his extension? I, I think it's a concern because it's a tougher contract than even uh, Dwayne Brown. Because, again, Dwayne, I apologize if I say this and you don't like it, is that uh, the simple thing for you is to get some guarantees into next year or the year after that and get a $10 million a year extension. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get $15, 16000000 million. That's not going to happen. In the case of Diggs, he's making $6.2 million a year in the last year of his contract. Okay, so what between $6.2 million and $17.5 as a Pro Bowl safety should he make? Uh, so I think it has to be a concern, but I think it's something that has to get done because I know it's going to be difficult, but he's still a, a great enough player and a, a guy that makes a difference on the field, particularly at one of the most important positions on the Seahawks, Pete Carroll defense, free safety, that they need something done. So it's like, uh, you know, it's, I, I, certainly I don't think he's going to be getting to the point where he gets to the regular season and not playing. Same thing with Dwayne Brown, but both guys need to get done. He is the professor. John will hear you this afternoon with Wyman and Bob and then talk to you to wrap up the week tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. That is John Clayton. You can also follow him at 710sports.com. What thing should we we be worried about most? Is it Dwayne Brown's Colton or now Quandre Diggs? Paul's going to help us dig into those next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle.
Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Quandre Diggs is holding in with the Seattle Seahawks right now. He joins Dwayne Brown as another important Seahawk veteran that is not out there at practice. There's a chance that all of this stuff resolves itself in the near future with contract extensions. There's also a chance that these little hold-ins result in nothing and these guys still end up on the field. But there's definitely a chance that, I would say more so with one Dwayne Brown, that these guys could potentially, Danny, miss some games in the attempt to prove a point. So if we're comparing the two of these situations right now, it's only been a couple of days with Quandre Diggs. With Dwayne Brown, it's been the entirety of training camp. What situation right now is a bigger deal? It's Dwayne Brown, and there's there's two reasons for it. The first is that I don't think the Diggs situation is going to end up being a crossroads. Like I, I, I think there's a resolution there. I know that Seattle is engaged and, and wants a contract extension. And that's something they communicated to Diggs months ago and said that, hey, th- th- after Jamal Adams gets done and that's the first one that, that we need to handle, that the Diggs is up next. The second reason, not just the logistics of, hey, I think Seattle wants this to get done and I think it'll line up there, is is the importance of position. I, look, I'm not going to tell you that their secondary is set and that they they don't they have a big comfortable luxury. But it's a free safety and it's a left tackle. It's a free safety and 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 it's it's a left tackle. And that's that in and of itself. Seattle's not any better prepared to be without Dwayne Brown than they are to be without without Diggs. And left tackle is more important. I agree with you from this perspective. We had Russ this off season talking about all the times he's yeah, been hit. man. Like he's already he's already said it. We're already going to be scrutinizing every sack. We're nervous that he might have Russ one foot out the door. As it is, it's really difficult to see the Seahawks replacing Dwayne Brown with anybody. Stone Forsythe looked exceptionally raw to this point in the preseason, and you don't really have great depth after that. I don't think you want Cedric Obwehi out there. However, Russ has had offensive lines in front of him before that aren't that great. It's been a general theme over the course of his career. You know he's going to get sacked 40-plus times, just like you know he's going to extend plays and make him downfield. So I actually think this is closer. Should things get really ugly with Quandre Diggs, then you would, you would think, at least at first glance, because what is this defense without Quandre Diggs as a center fielder in a year where you have real questions about both of their starting cornerbacks? Can you stay on top? And have guys, I guess, having security on the outside without Diggs out there? I don't know. And we've seen what this team was, Danny, not too long ago with guys like Lane O'Hill and Tedrick Thompson back there. You're right. You're right. The, the, abs- the absence of a solid free safety was a significant problem for this defense. Let's, let's talk about the likelihood of, of either missing time, though, because that's probably the biggest one for me. Mm-hmm. Look, yeah, I get that. Here, here's... I know Seattle wants to extend Quandre Diggs. I know that Seattle did not intend to extend Dwayne Brown as of a couple weeks ago. While it's possible something has changed in the interim, that 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 difference right there makes me feel that I think something's going to get done with with Quandre Diggs. 
it, it might get a little rocky here for the next few days, but I think something's going to get done. I don't think there's going to be a contractual resolution with Dwayne Brown. And then it becomes a question of, is 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 one side going to blink? Like, if, if there's not, is Seattle going to cave when they find out he's not going to go? Or is, is, is Dwayne Brown going to say, like, okay, fine, I, I, it's really not worth it? So that's, I think that the Diggs situation will be resolved. I, I really don't know how the Brown situation is going to resolve itself. What I'm curious about is how much Diggs is going to want. Because if you take a look at the highest paid safeties in the NFL, obviously Jamal Adams just broke the market. But the guys who are really good, and it starts with Landon Collins, they're all making about $14 million yeah. plus per year. That's what he's asking for, right? Is saying that, okay, I know I'm not Jamal, and maybe I'm not Justin Simmons, but like there's that whole tier of dudes that are making $13, $14, and $15 million that I should be in that conversation. A couple of comparisons. John Johnson, who signed with Cleveland, he's making 11 plus. Uh, Devin McCourty in New England, who is 34, is also making 11 plus. I mean, if I'm Diggs, I'm probably looking to get into that $14 million conversation. And do you 100%. want to have that much per year invested into this safety position in totality? Yeah. I'm okay with that. You were a great defense when you had that much spent on safeties. I- I'm-, I'm not worried about the price. I don't think it's going to be 14 It's probably going to be about 11 It's going to be somewhere somewhere in there. Seattle's got the leverage here, though. And I, I know that people will say, like, oh, see, because what are Diggs' choices? What are Diggs' choices? He's a guy that was released by Detroit two years ago. And a team is offering him and has not only traded for him, but he's thrived here. He's been to a Pro Bowl. Is is he going to want to play out a year and then get to free agency and see what happens? Or is he going to want to stay? I think ultimately, like, Seattle has the leverage. And they have the benefit with Jamal Adams. They had given up so much to get Adams. Like, we all talked about this. They had a massive incentive to get that extension done. And they had to make him the highest paid. There's a lot of reasons that I think that the the Adams deal is is was much thornier for Seattle than the Diggs extension will be. I wrote about it. I think the story's up on 710sports.com. Talking about the difference between that it, it's, it feels like this has just sprung up. It's something that has been on the dock, like they've been planning on. And, and really, it's, it's really the Dwayne Brown situation that I think has a lot more uncertainty. After Brown, you don't know who's up next. With I don't think there's anybody, is there? No. I mean, maybe it's Cedric Obuihi because he's your swing no, tackle. No, but thing, he's not no, healthy. no, yeah, no, exactly. no, 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 no. We're not, we're not extending. You see how he plays over the course of the year, and then maybe, maybe there's an opportunity to come back. No, I don't think there's anybody else up. I don't either, and, and I, I definitely think that's a big factor in this. Uh, someone texted in, well, Ryan Neal's playing well. Well, Ryan Neal's a strong safety. He's, he's Jamal Adams' backup, I think, more so than he's your, your, your center fielder. And, and that's a big question is who is, who is Quandre Diggs' backup? Is it Hugo Amadi? Is it Marquise Blair? You've got you've got some players. They they were certainly they're certainly more capable of filling that hole now than they were when Cam Chancellor held out, and you were you were putting somebody entirely kind of overwhelmed for that job in there. Amadi, I'm intrigued by, but I don't think he's ready. If that makes sense, I think he's got the same kind of speed that Diggs has in terms of being able to go from where he's at at the back of that defense elsewhere, but it's totally unproven. Where, where would you rank Diggs among the most important Seahawks, Danny? I have him at five. I have him behind Wagner, Adams, Brown, and Russell Wilson. I have him ahead of both. DK Metcalf? I think because you have Tyler, Tyler Lockett, Lockett and DK Metcalf, who are also in my top ten, because Chris you have Carson? both of them, and Chris Carson, who is eight. I think because you have both of them at far as far as that uh, wide receiver, 
if there was just one or the other, they would be higher up on the list. But I think the fact that you have both of them. I like Dig- I like Diggs a lot. He's if he's making the top ten, he's ten for me in terms of your most valuable or most essential Seahawks. I, I maybe I'm just a Quandre Diggs stand, or maybe I have too much a, a safety thing. But I mean, we saw the difference with this defense when he came in. It's true. And you know, here's Jamal Adams talking about Diggs' importance. I don't know if he's trying to get some safety, a little more money, but Jamal Adams, he thinks that Diggs is the quarterback of this defense. You know, obviously my guy back there, pro bowler, uh, Quandre Diggs, you know, he's always making checks and always making calls and, and helping guys out as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love I love balling with my guy, you know what I mean? And, and, and everything that he does on the football field is full throttle. Um, and he's, he's, he's a legit, legit quarterback of the defense. So, um, you know, this, this guy's just helping each other out, um, playing fast and, you know, just trying to make plays. 7-10, 7-10, where would you rank Diggs among – most important Seahawks, Dwayne Brown, too. It's Danny and Gallant, 710 ESPN Seattle. Up next, are you buying it? Shane Waldron isn't worried about getting that offense in action in the preseason. Is he right to feel that way? We'll talk about that next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. All right, it's time for us to run through some explanations to find out if we're giving it credence. Are you buying it with a fancy new intro put together by one more Adouli? That was not a smooth transition, guys. Sorry, here we go. It, it is dramatic, dramatic entrance. Are you a buyer or a seller? All we're doing is breeding a whole new generation of buyers and sellers. Buyers and sellers. Can we sell now? It doesn't look good in my portfolio. I'm out. Solid. Little Shark Tank in there? I'm out. I remember Lewis Black. Remember when he Lewis just Black yelled at is things? really funny. Oh, yeah. Dude, he has Lewis Black's routine about going into a, a, a coffee chain and asking for a medium coffee. And they're like, do you mean a tall? He's like, no, I mean a medium coffee. And the guy's, here's a grande and here's a tall. Which one do you want? He's like, I want the medium. He goes, and at this point, I'm screaming. And pretty much, and pretty soon, the manager comes over to me and says, what exactly is the issue here? He's like, I want a tall coffee and this guy won't sell it to me. <laughs> yeah, I do like, I do like a little Lewis Black. All right, are you buying it? Shane Waldron, who has yet to have his first string offense. Has he played a starter on offense yet in the preseason? Has he played a starter? A starter? Mm-hmm. The closest we've got is what? Freddie Swain? DJ yeah. Dallas? Not a starter. Is he worried about the lack of, of game reps for his players? You know, we've been growing as an offense every every single one of these practices. And just the ability, like I said, bringing back that competitive theme that that's been so consistent around here you know the practices are are in my mind game like and we've had so many of those experiences where we play these move the ball settings or you know play the offense versus the defense in in realistic game settings that you really start to have a really good feel for those uh you know for the guys that are that are playing well and how they're grasping it and then other things that we need to keep working on and keep sharpening up uh before that first game starts Maura and I were laughing about that answer before the show, Danny. I am selling that so far down the river because they are not game-like at practice. First off, no one can hit Russ. Second off, no one can hit anybody. And on top of that, I'm not even sure 100% of the time that defensive backs are allowed to 
compete for some of these balls that are being thrown up there. To be perfectly honest, I think there's been more contact in some of the flag football games I've played in this year. I'm not even kidding. I got a personal foul for one. So I sell, sell, sell. Now, I don't know that it necessarily is going to hurt Danny the Seahawks in the regular season, but they are not game-like. Not at all. Yeah, I'm selling it, too. Sell, sell. Yeah. I, I... You can you can question how important those game reps are, but you can't say that you're getting the same thing in practice because you're not. You, you're, you, you're just not. And I don't know how important it is. I just know that that's not a substitute. All right, the next one. So we're both selling on the idea that practice is just like a preseason game. The next one, the backup running back competition. Here again is Seahawks offensive coordinator Shane Waldron. It's a great competition because so many guys have done such a nice job. You know, Travis, the first thing you see out here is how fast he is. You know, we'll, we'll see when everything gets going with pads on, all that stuff for him, uh, when he can really let loose. But he's another guy, just like just like Colby's had some setbacks, but he's been doing everything right to get back as quick as he can. And then the rest of the running backs have all been doing a phenomenal job with Alex and, and DJ showing up in the games in a, in a multitude of ways right there, whether it's special teams, catching the ball, running the ball. Are you buying it or are you selling it? I'm, running back competition has been good, specifically backup running back. I, I'm buying because your guy, your guy, say it. DJ Dallas. He's been looking good, and not just in training camp, but in some of the games too. I, I, I think that he actually might be able to work his way into backup running back snaps because I also look at Rashad Penny, and I still think it's a little tentative out there. Now, I, I don't think he's in danger of missing the team, but I, I do wonder just how firm a command he has of that backup running back spot. Well, uh, I would I would like to point out that I feel a little bit like a traitor because you know who my guy was before DJ Dallas. Yeah, I love me I love me some Travis Homer. Yes, you did. I love did. some tra- some Travis Homer blitz pickup. Did I, I loved I and I specifically loved anybody who complained about Travis Homer to point out how good he was in 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 pass pro and and blitz pickup. He was really good at getting ragdolled too when he got handoffs. I am I. I'm all aboard the DJ Dallas train. I, I I feel bad about it. There is a little bit of poor one out for Travis Homer because I I've still got love for his past. Could pro. play left tackle. Yeah, but I'm 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 all aboard the DJ Dallas. I'm I'm all aboard the DJ Dallas is going to be a monster this year. Especially because you just want to say that over and over. Yes, again. I do. Do it again. That is true. That is true. All right, so we're both buying the running back competition. We're going to shift a little bit of national focus, because if you noticed yesterday on ESPN.com, this has been the week for the um, well, the, the Sean McVay-Matthew Stafford bromance. Oh, God. Front and center. We were uh, evening together. cocktails at Cabo, uh, commiserating commiserating over, over football plays that happened five years ago. Luge lessons. In the winters, they used to wear meat helmets. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's a different movie entirely. <laughs> but the Shane Waldron... I'm sorry, the Sean McVay-Matthew Stafford bromance includes them bonding over a specific fact and then Stan Kroenke deferring deferring to Sean McVay when it came to his choice of quarterback. Here's author Seth Wickersham. He wants Matthew Stafford, and he gets on the phone with the owner, Stan Kroenke, the same owner who paid Jared Goff a ton of money. right only a couple years earlier and explains why Matthew Stafford is the guy that Sean thinks will lead them to a Super Bowl. I was just explaining, you know, why I felt like he would be a good fit. 
talked to him a little bit about the time that we had spent together. And, you know, that trust that Mr. Kroenke makes you feel is is a big reason why, you know, feeling believed in, feeling supportive is, is why you want to do everything in your power to make him right on some of the belief that he's shown. That little extra echo makes him sound like your favorite stand-up comic. Yeah, it does. John Caparulo, where he goes, does anybody like orange popsicles? Orange <laughs> popsicles are the worst. <laughs> um, also, shout out to blo- the the podcast music. Yeah. There's like this little pensive, like single plucks of the guitar string that have become, I don't know if I blame Malcolm Gladwell or whose fault it is, but there is like, here are the details of this little important conversation that you may not know about, but we're yeah. really, really going to explore right now. It does sound like that. They all sound the same. And they added that music onto ESPN Daily. So that's the ESPN Daily podcast with Pablo Torre, where that came from. I love both those dudes, by the way. I Pablo do and, and Seth Weckersham. I look at this. Should, should be, here's, are you buying or selling Cronkay allowing uh, Sean McVay to make that call? Sell. What, what did they just do with Jared Goff? I mean. Sell. Sell. Now, maybe Stan Cronkay isn't the wisest of investors. I mean, he did move a team to Los Angeles thinking that it was going to you know be a huge draw. Built this big stadium, all that stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know how many people are going to want to go to games seeing as some of the restrictions California has. I look at this, Danny, and I just don't understand how you don't learn from the first mistake. And when you're hearing that one of the big reasons that Sean McVay and this thing developed that the, with Matt Stafford the way that it did on this trip to uh, Cabo, that they, Cabo. All, they all want us to believe that it was not prearranged or anything like that, it was because McVay and, and Stafford were talking about plays that happened five years ago with this photographic memory thing that Sean McVay loves to bring up all the time as some sort of a flex. That is the reason? Because, oh, wow, he remembered that drive at the end of the game? That's what got you excited? Come on, man. Here's why I'm buying it. If you're Stan Kroenke, you look deep into Sean McVay's eyes and you say, you want this quarterback? All right, this decision is on you. It's much the same as when Mother is confronted by Mikey McD afterwards who stands up for Worm and Rounders. And he says, if you're saying he's good for it, the debt's on you. That's exactly what you do if you're cronky at this point. All right, you're telling me he's the guy? It's on you. If this doesn't work, it's your behind. So, yeah, absolutely if you're staying cronky. But you tell him, this is, this is you that's on the line. You're telling you bet your job on this. You're betting your headset on, on this dude being the guy. And if you tell me that... Absolutely. Go ahead. You're my head coach. But don't don't come crying to me two years later and saying, well, Stafford isn't <laughs> Stafford really isn't the guy that I thought he was. I got carried away in Cabo or whatever the hell that was. <laughs> Stanny and Gallant. We got Blue 42 coming up next. We're going to take you inside the outstanding position battles.